After leaving university with an English degree, Jonathan Stroud worked as an in-house editor for a children's publisher. During this time, he gained experience helping writers develop and shape their ideas. The skills he developed in this role were helpful as he was also writing in his own time. His first novel, Buried Fire, was published in 1999, and this was followed by The Leap in 2001 and The Last Siege in 2003. However, it was the publication of The Amulet of Samarkand, the first book in the Bartimaeus sequence, that took his writing career to the next level. This alternate history fantasy series featured a highly memorable eponymous character, a 5,000-year-old genie with a bit of an attitude and a distinctive voice, and a teenage magician. In 2013, he started a new, equally popular series, Lockwood & Co. Set in an alternate London, Lockwood & Co. is an agency of ghost-sensitive teenagers whose task is to fend off the nighttime attacks of ghosts that appear throughout the city at night. Jonathan is now embarking on a new series, The Outlaws Scarlet and Brown. Here to explore further, I welcome Jonathan Stroud into the reading corner. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I I should say how delighted I am to be talking with you, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about this story. I think every book, you have a few ideas that that sort of leap into your mind and which everything else comes from. And one of these ideas at the beginning was the image I had in my head of my characters on a raft going down not like in Huck Finn going down you know, the mighty Mississippi, but just going, going down the Thames uh, through the home counties in a kind of slightly cut-priced British way, where the British landscape became almost a character in the book, and my characters would be afloat uh, in it. Um, I started out with lots and lots of fragments, and they had various characters kind of squabbling and arguing, um, and then you had little confrontations here and there, and I, I really had no idea how I was joining it together but I always have difficulty, especially with the first book in a series, you're looking for characters, really, um, and they've got to ignite. Once your characters work and you hear their voices and you understand how they talk, then you, know, then you can be a bit more confident and you can, you can start to construct things around it. I actually had a different main character for at least a year, and I was getting frustrated because I couldn't quite make it work. And eventually I binned this character and inserted a couple of others. And suddenly uh, everything began to flow. Let's talk about the characters next then. And we're going to hear a reading from you in a moment, which will tell us a little bit more about the main character. But you start with this wonderful girl with red hair and the pale face. And her name is Scarlett McCain. She had to be this quite sort of iconic figure. I think quite visually and you know I, I imagined the opening scene would be that she she's waking up in her camp uh in the British wilderness and she is uh surrounded by the, the bodies of various men that she's killed who, who they attacked her in the night and she's killed them and she wakes up and she she gets on with it and I thought that was a really kind of striking and quite cinematic sort of you know opening I could I could really I could really visualize it in my head which is a kind of nice way to to start to start a book I think. Mm. Perhaps we could hear a bit from the first chapter. Yes, yeah, so, so Scarlett has just woken up and um, she's kind of getting going with the day. Um, and I will read to you uh, what happens. I think she wants to go and get some water from the nearby lake. 
Her leather coat brushed against the reed stalks as she waded a few steps in and refilled the bottles. Mud and water reached halfway up her boots. She glimpsed her pale round face hanging distorted beyond the ripples. Scarlet frowned at it and the face frowned back at her. Its long red hair was tangled worse than the river weed. She'd have to sort that out before she went into town. She was tightening the bottle tops when she felt the skin prickle on the back of her neck. She looked behind her, suddenly alert, her senses operating at a new intensity. The sun was rising over the Wessex wilds. Everything was lit to fiery, optimistic gold. There was almost no breeze. Out on the lake, the motionless water clung about the reed stems, as flat and blank as glass. Scarlet stood where she was, a bottle in each hand, trying to hollow herself out so that every available sensation came flooding in. Her eyes moved slowly round. No danger was visible, but that didn't fool her. Something had come out of the forest, drawn by the smell of spilled blood. So where would it be? A short distance from the shore, midway between the lake and the trees, the remains of ancient buildings protruded from the humped grass. The melted walls were crags now, harder than rock and fused into strange black shapes. A flock of birds, coiling like a streamer, wheeled and darted high above, then swept off across the forest. She could see nothing else, nor was there any sound. Scarlet walked back to her rucksack, fixed the bottles and hoisted the bag over her shoulders. She kicked soil onto the fire, circling slowly so as to scan the landscape in all directions. If time had allowed, she would have rifled the bodies of the outlaws in search of supplies, but now she just wanted to get away. She made a token inspection of the bearded man, just another failed farmer who thought possessing a knife, a paunch and a bad attitude made him capable of attacking a lone girl sitting by the campfire. The knife was not as sharp as the one Scarlet had in her belt, but he did have a greaseproof pack of sandwiches in the pocket of his jacket. So that was Scarlet's lunch sorted. She left the camp and began threshing her way through the tall, wet grasses. Off to the west, clouds were massing to extraordinary heights, mountains of pink and white towering over the Welsh frontier. Scarlet moved away from the lake and made directly for the crags. Better face the creature now, out in the open with the sun at her back, than be stalked across the marshes. Hide and seek wasn't her thing. When she got within 50 yards of the walls, she stopped and waited. Presently, a long, low-backed piece of darkness peeled off from the edge and loped into the sunlight. It was a brindled grey and black wolf, a mature adult, twice as long as Scarlet was tall. Its head was lowered, but the lazily swinging shoulder blades rose almost as high as her chest. The amber eyes were fixed upon her. It came forwards unhurriedly, with the confident swagger of a salesman about to close a deal. No fuss, no flurry. It too was keen to get the job done. Scarlet's hand moved slowly towards her belt. Otherwise, she stood where she was, a slight slim figure in a battered brown coat, weighed down with a rucksack and chew and bottles and all the paraphernalia of a girl who walked the wilds. The wolf slowed its pace. When it was six yards away, it halted. It raised its head to the level of Scarlet's, and she and the animal appraised each other. Scarlet took note of the wet fangs, the black lips, the intelligence burning in its gaze. Perhaps the wolf noted something in Scarlet McCain too. It turned its head. All at once it was trotting past her and away. Its thick, sharp tang whipped against her face and was gone. Girl and beast separated. The wolf ambled towards the lake, 
following the scent of the bodies. Scarlet took a comb from a pocket and ran it through the worst knots in her hair. Then she located a piece of bubble gum, tightened the straps on her rucksack, adjusted the hang of her gun belt and set off towards the distant town. Enough dawdling. Time to get on with business. Time to demonstrate how a robbery should be done. One of the things that I really appreciated in the skill in your writing was how you built that world incrementally without me even realising that you're building a world. I'm just absorbed in it. So in that first bit where we've just been introduced to Scarlet, it's interesting to think about what you do tell us. How do we know when it's set, for example, from that opening? Well, there's a bit I didn't read. And there's a kind of crucial mention of the fact that she can see across these fens, she can see the town of Cheltenham. um, And Cheltenham is surrounded by uh, defensive walls. And so you know straight away in a slightly different uh, version of England. But there's mention to the kit that she has and and there's mention of plastics and guns and things. So you know it's not um, medieval. Um, you, you get you get these little clues, and you're right that um, you know I, I try to I try to build the world up as we go, and that's actually what happens with me as the writer. And I would see this little bit of the world in in my mind's eye, and then I'm slowly as I as I write, figuring out what happens if you go north or you go south. What 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 is this surrounded by? What are the roads like? All these questions that come naturally as you start moving your characters around the board, and in fact, I'm still it's still the case now because I'm I'm now sitting here trying to think about book two, um, and there's there there are more more aspects of the world that I'm trying to uncover, and you know you you go through the the series. If I do two or three books, by the end, hopefully, uh, I'll have I'll have figured out the whole world, and you know my readers will 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 see it in its entirety also. Mm. Tell us a little bit about this wolf, because it doesn't feel like it's an ordinary wolf. Yeah, everything's slightly off. Not just the wolf, but there are birds that are flying around and there's mention of them being kind of some of them have teeth. And then you you, you have um, rather large otters that are in the, in the Thames. And essentially, the British landscape has altered and the animals in it have altered, too. And they, they've evolved and they've become larger and slightly less amenable. It becomes more of a, a big deal to travel and most of the people will tend to stay close to their towns and they don't want to go out and get eaten by anything but scarlet being being scarlet is a traveler and that's one of the themes of the book really is the importance of looking outwards and not shutting yourself off in little communities the first five chapters are focalized through scarlet's eyes yes. Yes, I love the much, yeah. juxtaposition between chapter one and chapter two chapter two is in the town of Cheltenham, and we start with the bank manager. And it could just <laughs> yeah. be, it's like something out of Dad's Army. <laughs> very, yes, it's very, very much a Captain Mannering sort of figure, isn't it? This sort of very comfortable, rather complacent guy sitting in his little office with his biscuits and his cup of tea, and and then this girl walks in and basically, basically robs him um, because she's, a, she's an outlaw and a bank robber. And um, part of the fun of that chapter for me was this, just this kind of incredulity and outrage that this guy feels. He really is, he's annoyed at getting robbed, obviously, but he's really annoyed by getting robbed by this young girl who basically waltzes in and gets the better of him and then heads off. After five chapters, we meet the other main character in this story, um, Albert Brown. 
perhaps tell us a little bit about him? Yes, well, Albert is very important to, to Scarlett. You know, she comes across a wrecked coach in the wilderness. Everyone on it seems to have been, they've all gone. Um, but on this bus, so she goes in, into it to have a little look around, she finds one survivor, and it's this boy, Albert. And he's extremely hapless and sort of slightly wet and she she can't wait to get rid of him and she wants to sort of drop him off at the, at the road but of course he, he then will end up getting eaten by the wild beasts so she agrees to take him with her across the wilderness to the nearest town and we start to see things from his point of view um, and from the second section onwards we alternate between Albert's perspective and Scarlett's uh, and you start to uncover more about uh, Albert's background um, and really the engine of the of the book becomes this kind of conf- confrontation between these two very opposing characters who each lack something that the other one has. So in fact, mm. you know, as, as, they, as they go, they get closer together. The other thing that I, th- I think you're really good at is building enigmas. So it keeps <laughs> reader questioning as they're reading. Just one small example would be with Scarlet. In the first chapter, we find out that she's got this prayer match and then we later find that it's very precious to her. Yes. And her expletives tend to be things to do with gods, like, oh, goodness, Shiva or or whatever. So there's a kind of religious element coming in here, which we might be surprised at, given the kind of character and what we've learned about her so far. And so it gets you questioning, why is she so religious? The religious side was it was a kind of sleeper element in the book. As I wrote it, I became aware that it was actually quite an important part of it. In many ways, Albert and Scarlett seem kind of detached from all that because they're outcasts. They they kill people. They they do they do various things. They're they're, they're kind of anti heroes in many ways. Um, but actually, both of them have a quite a strong spiritual side, a spiritual yearning. Albert certainly does. He, his his comes through in a kind of curiosity and generosity of perspective on the world, which Scarlett doesn't have. She's quite cynical, but she has this prayer mat and she retreats to it and meditates and tries to find um, mental well-being. And, and I, I really like the fact that although Scarlett is a, a woman of, of, of you know immense action and fortitude, she has this other side which seems in opposition. The, the, the elements are not wholly reconciled in this book. And I think in the second book, which I'm working on now, we will uncover more about her history, how and why she operates that way. So the houses of faith, that's another aspect of religion as well within the story. Can we say something about that? Yes, and again, you'll get more of this in the second book, I think. But the towns, the surviving towns, they they all have their own sort of personality, but they, they all have a faith house. And in the faith house, the people of the town can go and Albert chats to a a lady who, who lives in the town who tells him that the list of some of the religions that you, you know, are on offer. So there's a sense that if you're in the town, you, you have these things on tap, may or may not be positive, because you also see that the towns are places where justice is, is quite harsh. And if you're, if you're somebody who doesn't conform physically or, or, or perhaps in your behaviour, then you, you get kind of turfed out into the, into the wilderness. So in fact, there's a, there's a sort of slight juxtaposition going on there that the most spiritual characters of the book are the outsiders. So um, Scarlett and Albert in the second half of the book meet up with an old chap called Joe and his daughter, who again are outsiders. And, you know, in one sense, they seem quite rough and, and ready, but actually these are the guys who have the, the, the spiritual qualities of connection and they all look after each other and you get the, the, the raft comes into play here. They're on the raft and it becomes 
like a kind of microcosm of a family unit or a little social unit. And they all, they're all mucking along together and um, figuring out how to live with each other. So there are, there are sort of these themes which I, I sort of resurface in the, in the book as, I, as I'm writing it. And hopefully mm-hmm. uh, I'll continue to sort of play around with them in the next book as well. I think we have to mention the tainted. Is this a bit of a zombie fest going on? <laughs> These are human beings that have become cannibals, basically. Yes, you, you have um, something nasty has happened, and the world has altered. And not only the uh, the animal life in the UK has altered, but there's a kind of implication that that human genetics has. Uh, has maybe been affected and so you get you get the the people in the towns who are quite sort of uh, paranoid about being pure and sort of fully human and then out in the wilds you get the the tainted who are very shadowy really but um clearly pretty pretty nasty customers and um albert and scarlet have to tread a bit carefully if they go anywhere near the the tainted um and again you know i i, I want i want to keep them quite shadowy really because i think you can uncover more information as we go but it's um uh, it's quite nice having a nasty threat out in the woods. Absolutely. I mean, the towns, are they, you talk about the manicured grass and the facade of respectability, but as you've hinted, really, lurking beneath that facade is something that's just as cruel, really, as, yes. you know, is happening on the outside. In a way, it's worse because you know, when Scarlet comes face to face with the wolf, the wolf is quite sort of open and honest and would quite like to eat her and Scarlet will stop it if she can. And it's a fairly, it's like a kind of transaction. It's quite open. And when you're in the in the towns, everything is coated underneath the sort of social norms. Um, I mean, I've been interested, obviously, like everyone has in the last years about the whole notion of Britishness and Englishness and what it means and what it should mean. And one of the things, again, I was playing around with in the book was um societies and, and societies can turn kind of inwards and i don't say fester but they, you know they, they you either turn inwards or you look outwards and um i was thinking about all that and in the end the book has become about many things but one of the things is change the fact that the, the world has changed and regardless of your thoughts about that and whether you wanted it to change or not you have to then accommodate that change and get on as best you can and i think scarlet and albert uh, embody this you know they they don't like the fact that the world is fragmented and there are you know giant uh, beasts wandering about and cannibals and things but you know ultimately they will go out there and face it in a way that other characters don't now i have to say moving to slightly lighter things here <laughs> you choreograph a very good gun battle oh good <laughs> i mean it just felt so authentic you know there's a place where scarlet is in a shootout and she kind of makes her elbow show to the side of the tree to kind of deflect them and I don't know that I thought it was a really good piece of choreography going on oh thank you I'm really pleased you like that I really enjoyed doing that and I I, and part of the the pleasure of Scarlet is that she's a tremendously physical presence and, and I really wanted to show her as opposed to Albert, who's running away, um, Scarlet is is incredibly kind of competent, and it's all about where you stand, where your enemies stand. If they, if they don't if they don't stand in the right place, then you'll be able to shoot them. You're really trying to visualise it as a something physical that I could see in front of me. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoy that. I mean, it, it's um, one of the pleasures about doing an adventure story or a, a quest story that you can create different action scenes, and some of them are to do with suspense, and some of them are to do with that kind of tension, and it's fun to 
to bring the changes and try and make each one uh, sing a little bit. Mm. That's also very cinematic. And I also wanted to say that, you know, we've talked about the darkness of this world, but there's incredible lightness that comes largely through the dialogue between Scarlett and Albert. Really important to me uh, uh, over the last, I guess, the last twenty. You know, suddenly feeling a bit ancient. You know, the last twenty years or so, I've with, with my Bartimaeus series and my Lockwood and Co books um, in particular. I I've realised that a really important part of writing for me is to use humour and have it there as as a kind of balance to to some sort of darker stuff. So you can you can put in all kinds of fairly heavy dark things like cannibals and gun battles and apocalyptic scenes but actually that's counterposed by the relationships of your of your main characters and and the, the humor and the the, the lightness of the, the, that they show um offsets that properly I, with, with Lockwood and Co it's very much that that you, my heroes would be fighting ghosts and you know ghosts are all about death and things but actually the humor and the, the love they have for each other is more than equal to that. So the reader doesn't get fully exposed to that darkness. And the same is true of Al, uh, Scarlet and Brown. I, I actually hesitate to say it's a sort of dystopian book because, yeah, okay, there's a, yeah, there's been all kinds of weird stuff going on, but actually I, I feel like it's an optimistic book. I think it's a very upbeat book, actually. I'll do. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to further adventures. You say that you're writing the second one now. Have we got any idea whether this is a, short series or a long series or are we <laughs> going to see where it takes us <laughs> i'm always very cautious about these i think um my, my instincts at the moment are that three books would be about right um i think you often do start with with something quite small your focus is on a girl by a campfire um a few dead bodies in this landscape and she gets up and she starts walking and then your 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 perspective starts to broaden after a while you've got a whole book and then I, I think, yeah, I can probably keep keep widening this for another another book, maybe two more books. And you, you can dimly see what might be happening in the next book or two. So I think she's going to Northumbria. Yeah, she does. She does say she does. I, you said that in this book. I'm not she, giving yeah. away any. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Yeah, definitely. No, in fact, that's one of was one of my my things I'm wrestling with at the moment. You know, what what what? Where's my map gonna gonna take me? What, what, where where precisely are we going to be in in book two? That's that's one of the fun things I'm trying to figure out right now. Mm. Well, thanks so much for talking to us in the reading corner. It's published in April. Yeah, I know. It's been a real delight to chat about it, and a delight to talk to you. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you very much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.